Hello from Ellensburg, Washington, USA. This is the Nick Sentner Geology Podcast, Episode 90. Columns, granite, etc. Thanks for listening. Yeah, etc., etc. That's one of the words I have trouble with pronouncing. Drive some people crazy. What can I do, man? Etc. is one of them. Ancients, another one. The list goes on and on. But this is a geology podcast, and I want to start right away, before I forget, about uh, talking about granite in Northrop Canyon, talking about basalt columns out at Drumheller Channels, and then I suppose that will spin off into some of the experiences I've had lately involving a pop-up geology event out at Drumheller and some challenges or some opportunities for new growth, shall we say, that I have with uh, technology stuff at the moment. So all that's uh, loosely planned here for you in the next half an hour or so. Thank you for listening. I hope everything's going well for you wherever you are. Let's start with the granite. So last time I checked in with you with the radio episodes, I was uh, reporting on my uh, magical morning with Randy Lewis. They're always magical. And we were at Peshaston Pinnacles. Since that time, I think just a couple days later, I went out with, I met uh, Gary Paul over at the North Fork of the Snoqualmie River in the North Bend, Washington area. So on the other, other side of the Cascades, in other words. Really enjoyed that hike with Gary. And, um, and then I kind of, you know, started doing stuff solo. So it, it kind of takes, um, well, more than kind of, you know, there's a reason I do a lot of this stuff by myself. It's just easier. I don't have to coordinate with anybody. If I wake up, I have a good breakfast, I'm feeling good, I check the weather, I grab the car and I go, and I've got everything I need in my, in my little backpack. And uh, the freedom and the uh, improvisation uh, is all there, and it's, it's, I love it. I, I love the ability to just kind of go out and do some things and not have to have any sort of set schedule or meet anybody at any particular time. So it must be more than a week ago, yeah, yeah, a week and a half ago, I was, it was an overcast day, Liz wanted me out of the house, I could tell, so I headed up to uh, Northrop Canyon, up by Grand Coulee Dam. Same idea, I didn't know if I was going to film or not, but I brought a couple maps with me, I just wanted to look a little bit more carefully at the granite in the floor uh, of Northrop Canyon. And as I was sitting there, you know, it was a good workout, hiking-wise. Again, just myself. Not a perfect day for filming. I, I think that sun really does help in many cases to kind of brighten things up. And I was using uh, the brand new iPhone 13 Max Pro, if you must know, uh, for the first time. So I was screwing around with that a little bit. New microphones, the whole deal. Anyway, I had the resources I needed as I was sitting there, uh, you know, eating my bologna sandwich and reading this report and looking at these maps and printed out an email that I had from Jeff Tepper. I just started filming and uh, hiked a little bit, filmed a little bit more. And then before I knew it, I still had a little bit of energy and I uh, thought, you know, I'm done with Northrop here, but 
Oh, let me just go over to Grand Coulee Dam, see if I can find a place where there's some granite exposed uh, near the dam. And I did, using a GPS coordinate of Tepper's, where he sampled and got a high-precision date for the granite. 72 million, by the way. 71.99 million years old, plus or minus, can't remember. So, I guess I'm, I'm reporting on... Uh, that video, which exists and has been popular, I've noticed. So, you know, the, these videos get get shared. I think that's why videos become popular, M much more popular than others. I think it's just how much people feel like they want to share them with, with, uh, with their uh, followers or whoever, whomever. So I promised to report on that. Well, what was the main point of that episode? I didn't know exactly, but as I was filming and talking and reading and thinking and even texting a little bit with Tepper, um, it was a rare chance to look underneath the Columbia River basalt lavas. I knew that's kind of the angle to why Northrop Canyon is important. But I was surprised when looking at those maps that there's a variety of granite of different ages, and not all of it's granite. Some of it is, is uh, migmatite which if you have a good memory from the radio series or the YouTube videos, Migmatite is uh, still mostly mysterious rock to me, but it's, it's basically a, a mixture of igneous and metamorphic textures and histories kind of swirled together. And to this point, I'm most familiar with the Chelan Migmatite complex. And as the crow flies from Northrop Canyon in the Grand Coulee Dam area, you don't have to go that far as the crow flies, I don't know, 30 miles straight west to Chelan and Lake Chelan and that migmatite. So in real time, as I'm filming, I'm starting to think, well, now, wait a minute. We're not that far from the North Cascades. Again, filming at Northrop Canyon, looking at granite that's Eocene in age, looking at granite that is late Cretaceous in age, looking at a little bit of migmatite. And it just dawned on me up there walking around and filming a little bit that Northrop Canyon and just north of there, where we're out of the Columbia River basalt lava cover, the German chocolate cake, and we're into more of these plutons and other kinds of strange Cretaceous and Eocene bedrock units, it's a good place to continue the thoughts involving the North Cascades. That led to an idea that, or a memory, I guess, that Chris Mattinson, the geologist who I work with here at Central, who was one of the guests during the Crazy Eocene series, I think he said it on camera, maybe he said it off camera, he said, you know, a lot of these North Cascades maps, they just kind of stop at Chelan. They don't really incorporate the exposed, similarly aged rocks to the east. In other words, it'd be nice to start seeing some maps that were kind of framed, and I think I might just start sketching these out for myself. Maybe, maybe it would be a new way to think about this. No, I actually tried doing that when I got home from Northrop, just upstairs. I just took some scrap pieces of paper and just started to frame a map where we're involving pretty much uh, Washington Pass, State Route 20, which I've talked about before, that's kind of on the western edge of your map. 
the central part of your map is, you know, the Metau, north of the town of Chelan, Twisp. But then let's go east. The eastern half of your map is to Nascot and even over to Republic. And if we do it that way, if we frame it that way, in other words, if we don't have a map centered on the North Cascades proper, but we have kind of the North Cascades in the left half of your map and the Okanagan Highlands in the right half of your map, maybe there's some just map patterns and other units that kind of pop out if they're colored properly. So I was trying to, I kind of forgot I was into that. Yeah, I should find those and keep going. Now that I'm talking with you here, I kind of like that. You know, if I have like four shades of pink and purple or orange or something, I don't know, kind of taking those magmatic flare-up uh, age brackets from last winter and just kind of swing those into Northrop Canyon, swing those into the Okanagan Highlands, swing those into the Grand Coulee Dam area. And as I was explaining to the people who were watching the Northrop Canyon granite video, I only did a little bit of this, but it's common for me down here in central Washington to, you know, find these granite erratics that were rafted in on icebergs during the Missoula flood time. And if I'm with a group, let's say, or if I'm with some students, and they'll go, well, where did this granite come from? And we go, well, it came at least 60 miles. And they're like, wow, really? How do you know that? Well, I would tell the group now, uh, you know, there's not much granite exposed at the surface north of here, you know, up, up flow or upstream with the Missoula flood path pathways. You got to go clear up to Grand Coulee Dam country to see some granite exposed at the surface where the glaciers and ultimately the Ice Age floods have a chance to pick up some granite and, and have it flow down here to Vantage or Frenchman Cooley or something like that, or even further south, Pasco Basin. Well, every time I do that, I'm always, you know, talking to myself at the same time. I'm like, why haven't you gone up to look at the granites that are at the surface in northern Washington? to really get a handle on exactly where this granite is coming from that the Missoula floods are carrying. Well, okay, so I was doing it a week and a half ago. I was looking at the granites in Northrop Canyon. I was looking at the granites at Grand Coulee Dam, and there's so much variety, and there's also a lack of detail with the petrology and certainly the age, uh, uh, the, the high-precision you know, uranium lead dates, that sort of thing. Even if we found some granite erratics and, let's say, broke off a piece and analyzed it and really wanted to know exactly where that thing came from, it'd be a cool little project, you know. We just don't have the database, we don't have the mapping in the Okanagan Highlands to, to say exactly where that granite came from. Or it's a northern Idaho granite, or it's a western Montana granite. So... It's an example of taking a, a local hike in Northrop Canyon in northern Washington and tapping it into some regional narratives and also include some new work. And the new work is a, a, new, a newly published date from Tepper. At least I think it is. I haven't heard from him since I did that video. Maybe he's pissed. I don't know.
Maybe I shouldn't have shared the, the sampling location, or maybe I shouldn't even have shared the date. I, now that I think about it, I better email him, or better text him and make sure he's okay. All right, so that's what I meant by granite. What else did I put in the title of this thing? Oh, yeah, columns. So um, I've been all over the place uh, this spring, not only physically, you know, geographically, but also, you know, topic-wise and age-wise. So I'm back in the Eocene, I'm back in the Cretaceous, uh, suddenly I'm in the Miocene with the flood basalts, and even the Ice Age, less than two million years, the Pleistocene. So it had been bugging me that I hadn't been doing any live events, and part of my excuse for not having live events is really the weather. We've had, I think I mentioned, we had snow last week. And, uh, and then this past weekend, the weather forecast looked glorious, and it was glorious. And spring has finally arrived here in central Washington. So I thought, okay, 48 hours in advance. Actually, it was last Wednesday. Actually, it was last Wednesday, a week ago today. That's why I'm recording this Wednesday morning the 27th of April. So last Wednesday, I, I checked the forecast. And I'm like, oh, Friday's going to be really nice. Okay, well, I'm going to announce, this is last Wednesday, I'm going to announce the Drumheller Channel's location that I made a video helping people know where to park and how to walk and how to find these beautiful columns at Drumheller. I'll announce a, a, a pop-up geology, the first one for 2022. And I did. And two days later, I, you know, the thing was set for 11 a.m. The event was, was set for 11 a.m. I think I showed up about 9.30, maybe 9.45. There were already a couple people there. Uh, hiked out there to this meeting place, quite remote. Had three bars of Verizon coverage. Had my little tripod. Had my iPhone. Had my wireless mic all set to go. People start rolling in. Uh, it was a little bit more unique in the sense that, you know, it's, it is remote. And all I had was that video to tell people where to park and how to hike. And there, there wasn't a trail or anything, you know. You just follow the, the, the breadcrumbs basically on the, on the video link that I shared with everybody. And I think there were 150 people there maybe 200 at, at, at the peak time. A great time. People from across the Pacific Northwest, even a f young family from Ireland. So that's a first. Somebody flew. Somebody had been watching the videos during the pandemic, and they take their vacation time, and they fly to, to the Pacific Northwest to see all these places. I mean, that's been happening on a smaller scale with folks here in the West, but Michael and his family flew from Trim, Ireland, and uh, so they were a big hit, and everybody wanted to talk to somebody with a thick Irish accent. So, And Patrick, eight-year-old Patrick, was there with his family. So uh, that was recorded as well, but that's, that's part of my report. A little bit of geology to share with you from that. What, you know, was I just going to do the same old thing I've done forever out Drumheller? Well, no, I wanted to find a new angle. So I found this angle that I think worked. You never know what's going to work, but you can feel in real time when something's working. Uh, the columns uh, at Drumheller where I was, 
our inner basalt flow called the Elephant Mountain flow. And as I mentioned in the video, there's always confusion when you have a name for a rock layer among non-geologists. If we call it the Elephant Mountain Lava Flow, and we do, then, then people assume we're at a place called Elephant Mountain. Well, we're not. And then maybe the next uh, thought is, oh, we're not at Elephant Mountain? Well, this is a lava flow, right? So I must, Elephant Mountain must be the volcano that erupted to make this lava flow. Well, that's not right either. There is a place called Elephant Mountain near Moxie, Washington, in the Yakima area, but that, that is not the source of the Elephant Mountain flow. And then you're like, well, why the hell do they call it Elephant Mountain? And there's a long history in geology of uh, naming a layer after the place that was first studied carefully and published. It's called the type locality. So the type locality for the Elephant Mountain lava flow, I presume, although I'm not sure, is this thing called Elephant Mountain outside of Yakima. But if you look carefully at the lava, in other words, if you look carefully at that lava flow at Elephant Mountain, that's not the source. You don't have any spatter. You don't have any feeder dike. You don't have any indications that you're at ground zero for the eruption of that basalt. And at Drumheller Channels, you don't have that either. You have the flow um, 50 feet thick and uh, no vesicles and no indication of anything dramatic right there. So what's the angle I tried with the uh, pop-up geology event at Drumheller Columns that I think worked? Taking three individual basalt lava flows, all three of which are beautiful column formers, by the way, and geographically carefully say where the known vent is or was for that flow. So in the case of Elephant Mountain, which was the star of the show, and we had the camera set up, I'll, I'll, I'll get into the technology stuff in just a bit. We had the camera set up, you know, I'm in the frame, and this wall of beautiful basalt columns is behind me, the Elephant Mountain flow. And, you know, the pop-up things, I don't have maps on purpose. I don't have any, you know, cartoons or whiteboards or anything. I'm just trying to use my, my words. And so I say, here we are in central Washington, near Othello, Washington, but we know the source. We know where the fissures, the cracks, the feeder dikes are for this Elephant Mountain flow. And you've got to go down to Oregon. You've got to go to extreme northeastern Oregon. The closest little town is Troy, Oregon. The Elephant Mountain source, the feeder dikes. And the date I shared was 11 million years ago instead of 10.5. So we have some slightly improved high-precision dates, not from the basalts themselves, but from the interbeds above and below some of these basalt flows. So we can use some uranium-lead zircon work in the ash beds or other kinds of uh, sedimentary layers that are the little frosting between the chocolate lava flows in the German chocolate cake. So 11 million years ago, there's an eruption. There's two main fissures down by Troy, Oregon, and here comes this rather modest in volume lava flow coming from Troy, Oregon, flowing like chocolate syrup now, the Elephant Mountain eruption, not from Elephant Mountain, right? Coming down a, a, a valley, a river valley, towards Lewiston-Clarkston, then getting into what is now the Snake River Canyon, although I don't think it was the Snake River at that time. So this little narrow orange worm on a map 
is the Elephant Mountain flow coming down the former, or what is now the Snake River Canyon. Can you picture that on a map? Kind of southeastern corner of the state of Washington. And then when we when that Elephant Mountain lava gets into central Washington, the topography changes. I didn't say this during the pop-up event last Friday. It flattens out. It's a broad plain. You're like, well, how do you know that? That's 11 million years ago. Well, the Elephant Mountain fans out. The, the lava uh, thins, presumably, and spreads out. And then the red hot liquid magma cools off. Skin on the top, skin on the bottom, crack it, form the columns. But I didn't stop there. I said below your chairs, again, many of them brought, you know, folding chairs or camp chairs, and they're sitting there in this, uh, this little alcove looking at the elephant mountain columns. But I say, you are, you are sitting on top of the next lava flow below us. So this, this, this German chocolate cake thing is like a, a giant staircase in many cases. Whoa. It's like a giant staircase, oftentimes. And people at the pop-up event, you have your folding chairs on top of the Priest Rapids lava flow. I forgot the date. Older than 11, right? Can't remember what I said. 11.9, maybe. Um, and I said, those columns, which are not on display here because you're on top of the flow, but if you go back to where you parked, or if you hike along Crab Creek after this, you'll see fatter columns at a lower elevation. That's the stair step that's right below us. And that Priest Rapids flow did not come from Troy, Oregon. Those are a different set of cracks. Those cracks are best exposed over by Cheney, Washington. Not quite the exposure that the Elephant Mountain source is because we don't have a deeply dissected river canyon like the Grand Ronde River Canyon over by Troy. So I even had distances, like the Elephant Mountain flowed 200 miles from Troy, the Priest Rapids lava flow, slightly older, from a different set of cracks, traveled about 100 miles from Cheney, and then below it, and I asked the group in, uh, I was going to say in real time again, I can't, why do I get onto these phrases and I keep repeating them? Not good. Please forgive me. I asked the group as I was talking, What's the lava flow below the Priest Rapids that also has beautiful columns? And one voice shouted out, Rosa! And who was the voice? Eight-year-old Patrick. Off camera. Big round of applause for Patrick. In real time. During the live event. And those are the crinkle-cut French fries as opposed to the Tootsie Roll columns of the Elephant Mountain. I don't know if anybody's still with me. And the Rosa flow... Uh, has a, a different fissure yet, uh, a little town called Tokyo, uh, east of Ritzville. So, the, you know, it's you can you can share. Here's what I think worked, and it works for me too. Uh, you can teach a concept, you can say Pacific Northwest, you can give little you know thicknesses and distances and that sort of thing. But to really make it work for people who know an area quite well, I mean, they all traveled, you know, some 
drove to Drumheller Channels that morning from Idaho or from northern Washington or from Oregon and many places in western Washington. So they know some of these places. Their lives have intersected with some of these places for whatever reason. And so if you can get down to a nearest little town, or even better, if you can, with, with the Tokyo example, I, I, I said, you know, you know, there's that kind of spooky gas station that's off I-90 just east of Ritzville, and there was a little chuckle. Those little things work. It's like, oh, that guy's been there too? Yeah, I know that place. You're, 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 you're um, strengthening a connection with your audience by including little detail. It's almost like comedy. Uh, I'm a fan of comedy, and occasionally I hear a comedian say, uh, you know, I get a bigger laugh if I, instead of just saying toothpaste, I say crest. Like you're a little bit more specific. You have, you have a name. You have a visual. It, 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 just, it, 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 it Somehow it just works better. So I try that. Not I'm trying to get laughs or anything, but I'm just I'm just saying if, if you have a little bit more detail with what you're saying, if it's a town or if it's a road or if it's a fruit stand or if it's a any kind of little landmark that is not okay. It's specific, but it's not specific in the academic world, it's specific in the normal person world. I think academic folks just don't give that a second thought, but I, I have learned that that, that that works. Any sort of pop culture reference, you know, it's tough when I'm teaching 19-year-olds and I'm 60, so I, I can't be talking about the Brady Bunch with these guys. But Okay, so you get the idea. So I'm hoping to do a few more uh, pop-up events this spring, weather-dependent, everything else. I got a couple other ideas in mind. I'll finish with a little bit of technology stuff. I'm in one of those uh, transition phases. I'm kind of lost. Um, and I think I just want to share that part of what gets me excited about doing all this outreach stuff is the geology, of course, and the audience and the breaking new ground and having new thoughts. I'm going to go out and film today, for instance. But I think I'm starting to realize that part of the fun for me, is to keep pushing forward with some technology stuff. So there was a major technology problem with that Drumheller event. I had three bars of Verizon coverage, which worked perfectly fine last fall, four times. Four out of four times, no problem with the live stream. Oh, it was a disaster. The live audience, I don't know how many there were because I, I couldn't even really watch the replay without... Uh, getting upset. And when I was doing the talk in real time from Drumheller, uh, I think every 20 seconds, it felt like it at least, every 20 seconds the phone would would die. And what I mean is the, the live stream on YouTube uh, would go dim and there would be a button on my phone that says, please press to reconnect. And it was every 20 seconds. Can you imagine giving a, a talk for 45 minutes to, you know, a group of, let's say, 150 people sitting out there in this beautiful place and the birds are chirping and everything else and you're trying to focus on what you want to say and every 20 seconds you look up and you keep you keep hitting the, the phone to reconnect. Oh, my God. It didn't feel good in real time, I'll tell you that. In real time. In real time. 
in real time. I should call this one in real time. So I was despondent at the end. I enjoyed visiting with everybody, but I was despondent. It pissed me off, you know. Great gathering, perfect weather. Had some new stuff for everybody. Everybody's taking the time from around the world to tune in live, and they can't they can't follow what I'm doing because it cuts off every every 20 seconds. And so in replay, uh, the thing was incoherent because I'd be talking for 20 seconds and then I would it would the replay would just cut to the parts where I was live streaming. So I took the thing down. Then people got they didn't get upset, but some were like, it was fine. I could follow what you were saying. It's like, nah, it's just, uh, no. You know, I have certain standards here. That that just wasn't coherent. But there is a hero to the story. And I maybe have fallen into a new, I think I have, fallen into a new uh, uh, technology approach with the live events. Uh, Ajith. Ajith from Redmond, or, uh, Redmond, Washington, is the hero. So when I gave the talk, there was a guy with a little chair, you know, whatever, 10 yards away from me, and pleasant fellow, never met him before, Ajith. And I noticed he had something set up in the grass on a little tripod, like almost like a little big spider, like little, little legs a piece of equipment, in other words. And my memory says it was kind of a little cylinder or something. I didn't really know what it was. I figured it was some kind of camera or something. Well, it was a GoPro. And Ajith uh, recorded what I was doing from ground level. And um, I didn't give it much thought. Well, afterwards, Ajith comes up and said, it looks like you were having some trouble with that live. And I think, yeah, I was. And I'm sure I was moaning about it with the crowd in real time. And Ajith says, I think I recorded, my battery died on this on this GoPro that I have, but I, I think I captured most of what you did. Can I send you the link? And I'm like, oh my God, that would be just amazing. I, I don't think I'm going to have anything coherent in, uh, to record this event. So he did, later that night, Friday night. And so I took that and, and uh, uploaded it to my YouTube channel. And it's most of what we did. But I was stunned mostly by the audio. Like I have my little wireless mic uh, connected to the to my phone. There was no audio connection to the GoPro 10 yards away or 15 yards away. I don't know what it was. And it was good audio. You could hear the birds and everything. Much better than with my audio. And then, of course, the video was good too. So I think, quite confident, <clears throat> that the next time I announce a pop-up event 48 hours in advance i will you know tell everybody where we're meeting and that sort of thing but i will be careful to say i'm not going to live stream this one and i will record it and the quality the video and audio quality will be better than what you normally get with a live stream and i'll premiere it or post it after the fact, and maybe we'll have a live audience just watching it together, including me being in the in the live chat. I think YouTube calls them premieres. Uh, I'm not a huge fan, but I think in this case, it might be the best way to combine the, the live viewers with 
with watching a pre-recorded pop-up event. That's that's the latest thing. So sometimes these, as you well know, uh, sometimes accidents or mishaps are the best way to kind of break through to a new approach. And I my working thought right now is that I'm only going to live stream when I have when I'm on campus. I'm very pleased with Central Washington University's uh, hardwired Ethernet cable internet speed. I, I need to figure out who, who to thank for that. I think it's a guy named Chris Timmons. But uh, uh, that is so reliable that I'm working with Nat the Wonder Boy right now to figure out how to get something set up in my office or possibly even outside the building, but using an Ethernet cable so that I can live stream using um, the Internet at my school. But otherwise, I think I may be done trying to live stream using my phone. I already made that decision that I wasn't going to live stream from my backyard because the Internet was uh, unreliable and I'm competing with neighbors and upload speed and download speed and download rate and I, I, that, that stuff just cra drives me crazy. And yeah, there's Starlink and other things. I'm, I'm in on the ground floor with Starlink, but they're not ready to help me. And so I think, I think this, this live thing has a place and people love being in a live chat room and will definitely continue to do that from the classroom. But my latest technological thought is live streaming on campus. And so if you've been a fan of the YouTube channel, you notice that I did a little walking to Lind Hall video, which some were like, this is weird. Why do we do, why do, we do a, a, a hike to where to park for free and how to walk to the campus? Well, some, some figured it out. I'm going to try to do some things um, on campus because of why I just, uh, for the reasons I just mentioned live streaming from campus using the internet cable, uh, the internet, uh, the ethernet cable, excuse me. But otherwise, it's just, it's just a continuation of trying to stay fresh, trying to learn new things. I think I'm today I'm going to film uh, in the Wenatchee area with the Swakane Biotite Nice, make a little video there. That's the plan. We'll see if it happens. But I continue to just kind of freelance this spring, and I'm having a great time. I hope you're having a great time where you are too, dear listener. I think that's the end of this one. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Nick's Entner Geology Podcast. Thank you for listening. I love you. And goodbye.